Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear from me, Caitlin Woolsey, Assistant Director of the Research and Academic Program and producer and co-host of this podcast. I speak with Mary Lum, a visual artist whose intricate collages, paintings, and photographs explore the margins of city life, constructed geographies, and the use of text as image. What's exciting to me about making things is bringing fragments together. I I always um, work with a collage process. I'm not interested in providing a linear story. I'm not interested in making someone whole through looking. What my work does mostly is it implicates the viewer as part of the story. It makes the viewer solve the problem in a way. Thank you so much for joining me, Mary. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, Caitlin. I'd love to start a little bit differently than we sometimes do, uh, where we kind of look at tracing early influences and instead ask you to speak a little bit about what you're thinking about in your artistic practice at this particular moment. And then we'll kind of take a more retrospective look. Great. I, I appreciate you taking that approach because, of course, what I'm working on now is always the thing that I'm most articulate about because I, it's on my mind all the time. I also would say I'm just working all the time. I live in my studio and literally to get to the shower from my bed in the morning, I have to walk past my work tables. I don't want to pretend that I'm someone who's so completely madly driven that I can't leave my work alone. Living in the studio, you also can't escape your work. So right now I'm working on an artist book and an exhibition that surrounds the research that I did last summer at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute in Cambridge. I was given a prompt to find something in the archives at the Schlesinger Library to work on through the things that I would then subsequently make. The exhibition was always a given, but it was my choice to also make an artist book rather than an exhibition catalog. So in July last year, I spent my whole month absolutely freezing in Schlesinger Library archives. What I found were 11 boxes of papers and a big portfolio by the artist Corita Kent, or you may know her as Sister Corita. Sister Corita was a nun at the Immaculate Heart College. She taught at the Immaculate Heart College and was part of the Immaculate Heart community. And she was also one of the most um, seminal and important pop artists who were working with, with ideas about words and images together in the 1960s. She sat alongside, though was not nearly as recognized by the art world as Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg. She was working in the same kind of revolutionary way that they were, especially Andy Warhol in that Sister Corita used silkscreen printing 
to point out aspects of our daily lives or daily life in the 60s that we may have overlooked. And this brought her work very close to my practice. I work with words and images, words as images. And I also work with ideas about daily life, the everyday things that surround us all the time that we sometimes take for granted and don't even think about. Or if we think about them, uh, disregard them as unimportant. There's a quote from Corita Kent that opens my artist book that I'll just read. I think I am always collecting in a way, walking down a street with my eyes open, looking through a magazine, viewing a movie, visiting a museum or grocery store. Some of the things I collect are tangible and mount into piles of many layers. And when the time comes to use these saved images, I dig like an archaeologist, and sometimes I find what I want and sometimes don't. You spoke to the resonances between her interest in word and image and using language text as a a visual element, but how is that being expressed and what does the transition look like from the research and archival process that you were undertaking in July to the work that you're making that's informed by this time spent with her archives? Well, when I was at Radcliffe last summer in the archive I took a lot of photographs, and then I would print out photographs and start cutting them up and recombining them, mostly photographs of text, um, some photographs of her, what the 11 boxes contained was mostly correspondence. And she corresponded with a wide range of important artists and designers in the 1960s and 70s, including Charles and Ray Eames, um, Buckminster Fuller, Anais Nin, um, and, and a long correspondence with Daniel Berrigan, the activist priest who was jailed for his anti-war mm-hmm. um, efforts. So as I cut into the material and started recombining it, what happened is you start to think about the archive in new ways. You mm-hmm. start to think, oh, I need to go back to this folder because, you know, Ray Eames' handwriting is just like Sister Carita's photograph of barbed wire. Or you start seeing relationships and resonances that you may not have seen upon a straight viewing of the archive. I'm an artist, not a scholar. And so perhaps and likely I missed a lot of what a scholar would have seen or gotten out of those 11 boxes. But in my visual research, then I took it back to my office and just worked on recombining the things that I found. And that's characteristic of your artistic practice and the way that you work with and through ideas and found elements and materials that you are sort of cutting apart and, and layering and repositioning different elements and looking at resonances between things that ostensibly might be completely different, like Ray Eames's handwriting and the image of, the, of barbed wire. That's exactly right, Caitlin. It's exactly what I do. I never start with nothing. Mm-hmm. I I think that the idea of a blank piece of paper or a, a blank canvas um, is really romantic and lovely for everyone else. But for me, I need to find something or at least think of a relationship or a color or something and start there. I only really work with fragments. So what's exciting to me about making things 
is bringing fragments together. I, I always um, work with a collage process. I'm trying to think if I'm lying here, but there's nothing I make that's made out of a whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's always a fragmented kind of image, which is a good metaphor, really, for everything um, about my life, that it's divided into little pieces, and, and they're, they're not separate. They can't be separate at all. I'm not interested in providing a linear story. I'm not interested in making someone uh, whole through looking what my work does mostly is it implicates the viewer as part of the story. It makes the viewer solve the problem in a way without being tricky. When I was in college, I was often accused of being clever. Uh, uh, and that was so abhorrent to me. There was nothing I wanted my work to be less than clever. Mm. And so over the years, I've tried to refine my practice so that the work is tough rather than clever. But a a writer who I really respect once said to me, what's wrong with tough and clever? You know, does it have to be either or? As I've worked over the years, I've come to understand that it's not how many bits of things you make, it's the way you put things together. I have a studio full of fragments. I have so many plastic tubs of comic fragments. These are the painting fragments. But I also, without being at all sentimental about the things that I put in my work, I have a hard time throwing things away because I think that they might be useful. And you've probably found that in the past through your working process, that things return in ways you don't expect in terms of how you use fragments. Uh, Absolutely. Things return. You know, I grew up with books and libraries and art supplies as my main companions. I was largely left to my own devices as a child, although my mom provided me with as many art supplies or books as I could possibly ever want. And I had a great uncle who was a children's science book writer and his publisher, McGraw-Hill, used to send him stacks and stacks of books, children's books to review Mm. of all sorts, not just science books. He would just send those on to me. And I always had piles of books and I read everything in sight. And in fact, even into my adult years, the it's, I'm not an especially fast reader, but I do love the act of reading and I can get really engaged. And I know as a child, I I really didn't connect well with a lot of my classmates ever. One, because I was different because I was Asian. And being Asian in the 50s was practically the worst thing you could possibly be um, because of World War II and the anti-Asian sentiment. So I really had books and and drawing as ways to not only entertain myself and, and feel like I had a presence in the world, but also just to know that I existed. In the access that you had to books and arts, did you see your experience or yourself reflected back? Or was it more just through the act of being in a kind of conversation with the characters or through creating your artwork that it felt like uh, you had a kind of purchase on yourself and your world in a different way. 
There were no Chinese role models when I was a girl. My father was a Chinese man who wanted desperately to be a typical American. Mm. And so he didn't teach me Chinese. We went to Hawaii often to visit my Chinese grandmother, who I couldn't speak to. And I didn't see myself reflected at all in when I was growing up in Michigan in literature or in in artwork. Later, when I went to college, I was really lucky to have a Chinese woman as a painting teacher who was also just a really good teacher. She was my first role model mm. that you could actually be an artist and be a reader and have a, a kind of a normal life as just a person in the world, not a Chinese-American person in the mm. world. It's really interesting because she was a taskmaster and she loved Joseph Albers' color theory. And the, there's a big Joseph Albers book of silk screens that um, are the solutions to problems he gave to his students. It's called The Interaction of Color. And Mrs. Chang, my Chinese painting teacher, would bring that book into the painting studio at the University of Michigan. And she would just flip open the silkscreen folders and she would say, mix this color, mix this color, mix this color to the whole class. And we would all complain bitterly, but we all really learned what colors were made up of. And I also had this surrealist teacher named Jerome Kamrowski, and he was really part of uh, the New York art scene in the 1950s and 60s. And he's known as a compatriot of Jackson Pollock and William Baziotis, they there's all sorts of anecdotes. If you look up Jerome Kamarowski about the three of them mm. um, flipping paint onto a canvas, that being Jackson Pollock's introduction to action painting. But what Kamarowski gave me was he taught me about automatic writing. Mm. So he taught me about the surrealist where you, you pay attention to what's coming from you rather than what you're looking at on the outside. And so that in combination with a course that I took in lettering, it was a graphic design course, but it was just called lettering, which I loved because you just had to sit there with a pen and graph paper and draw diagonal lines and then draw curved lines, hours worth of diagonals and curves. And then all of a sudden you put them together into letter forms. It's so interesting that, that those early moments studying art in college mixing these different pigments to make a color. It's like the fragments being combined and recombined, or it's the different arcs or curves being combined into letters. We're in some way kind of priming you to think or to create in, in ways that resonate with the collage work that you make now. But at that time, were you making collages or were you really focused on painting? No, I was making collages then. Mrs. Chang, my Chinese teacher, was a collage maker I just deeply admired her work and her collages. So, of course, I had to make collages, too. And then I carried that through graduate school. And it's very interesting to work with collages, torn paper collages. You know, I spoke about sentiment before. They can get sentimental really fast if you love the materials too much. Mm. And it's the same with painting. If you, you might paint an area of your painting that you just love, and the thing that you have to do is get rid of it then. <laughs> and you try and try to finish the painting to preserve that thing that looks so good and 
combines the colors in exactly that way. But with collages, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to create and destroy. I can just remember Mrs. Cheng going, create and destroy, create and destroy. And it's exactly what I do right now in my practice in which I make something and then I often just cut it in half. If I can't make it work, I cut it in half. Mm -hmm. Or if I can't see how it could possibly be finished, I know that I have to put a big thing on top of it and then rip away that thing or, or something. You know, I know that it's a process, rather it's not an intellectual process, it's a visual and physical process. The intellectual work comes before and after, but the physical making of things is just that. It's just a matter of putting things down and taking them away. It makes sense in relation to you speaking about automatic writing and this effort to both tap into what's happening within oneself rather than being outwardly focused, but also releasing yourself from the kind of habituated modes to see what strange things occur or what uncanny connections arise. I think that's exactly right, Caitlin. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, I sort of sleepwalked through graduate school. I, I'm not sure I l- learned anything We were stuck in downtown Rochester in a studio and left completely by ourselves. But what I did in graduate school is I did a lot of research on Japanese prints. Graduate school was the last time I really painted with oil paint. I researched Japanese prints from the Edo period, and I appropriated imagery. I would put details of their prints scattered around the surface of a large painting, And then I would write the title of the print right into the painting in very fancy letters that I had learned to make in lettering class. The titles of Japanese prints are very descriptive. The woman sitting on a cake box or the poem of the pillow. And of course, no viewer could really see those elements in the painting. There was no woman or no cake box. There were just all of these little random fragments of the Japanese print um, scattered across the surface. So it was sort of like a, a more controlled form of automatic writing, I guess. It was, it was taking the idea of automatic writing one step further in an appropriation way. You know, in between the undergraduate school and graduate school, I had one of the most highly formative experiences of my life in that I moved to California and I had never been to California. I moved to Los Angeles and looked for any job. I had this idea that I could be a nanny in Beverly Hills, but fortunately I got a job in a store in Beverly Hills instead. And the store just happened to be design research, which was the epitome of elegance and and good design in the 1960s and 70s. What design research did was it brought finished design and modernist furniture to the American public, forwarded a a kind of idea of the lifestyle. It was probably the first lifestyle type retail venture. It was the precursor to Crate and Barrel, Pottery Barn, Williams-Sonoma, all of those kinds of stores. All of the people working in the store were in their 20s, like I was, and wanting to be artists. 
but having to have, you know, a job because the art world wasn't like it is now then, or maybe it was, but I wasn't connected to it in the way that I am now. But at Design Research, I was the display person, meaning that every Thursday night I did the windows. I would have to think of an idea, getting feedback from from various department managers about what needed to be in the window. Um, I I would have to invent an installation. And so every Thursday night, I worked late into the night trying to put together various elements to make a a seductive composition. And design research had very large glass windows that went from the top of the store to the ground to the sidewalk. So the, the sidewalk was brought into the store and the store spilled out onto the sidewalk through this pane of of transparent glass. And so I would make the window from the inside and then I would go outside and I would see not only the things that I had arranged on the inside, but also the reflection of the big sculpture at the bank behind me and um, of the buses passing and of daily life happening around as if the window were a curtain and you could almost walk through it. Mm-hmm. At the time, did you think about that work as a kind of extension or continuation of the art making you'd been doing from childhood up through undergrad? I wish I had been that sophisticated then, but I wasn't. I was just trying to do the job and somehow assert my identity as an artist through Mm -hmm. it. But I didn't make the connection between that and making installations and putting together bits of things But I think it really has something to do also with my interest in archives right now. Um, Although I'm not interested in archives as a researcher, I'm interested in archives because of what they look like. I, I do love researching people that I feel a kindred spirit with. Like I went to the Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian and did a lot of uh, looking at the papers of Rei Yoshida, who Mm. was a Japanese-American artist, taught for a long time at the um, Chicago Art Institute. He also made collections, like I make, of comics. And I looked at his notebooks and scrapbooks, and I felt a real kinship there. I think it's never the shock of the new, it's the shock of the familiar, Mm. right? It's how you are drawn to things. So I think that my interest in archives stems from the idea of being able to find things to look at that relate to what I think about. I also can see the ways in which I imagine at Design Research, they weren't getting entirely new inventory every week. So it's also a matter of recombining and rethinking the way that you're relating different colors or patterns or materials those practices of assembly and seeing relationships, I can completely see how it's like a mode of thinking that is transferable, whether you're looking at archival materials or whether you're making collage work in your studio or whether you're creating a a window installation. Was there a particular moment or experience or period of making where you feel like language and text became more obvious as a visual element that you could mine? I can can tell you a story 
that sounds a little bit unbelievable about when exactly text became a viable material for me. Mm. In the 1980s, I started going to Paris regularly. After I graduated from graduate school, um, after I taught at Oberlin, I got the courage to just pick up. I had never, well, no, I had been to Europe to the Olympics in 1973, and but I hadn't really been to... Europe on my own before and never to Paris, which since I was a child, I was just obsessed with. I mm. I've, have found collections of that I had as a child of the Paris subway map. And, but in 1987, I was in Paris and I was taking a lot of photographs. And I, where I stay in Paris is very near uh, one of the bridges over the Seine. And I would just stand on that bridge and look at the water for hours, the way the sun glints on it in a Monet sort of way. It was such a cliche, but I started trying to make paintings of that with dots of paint, just little dots. And then I somehow jumped over to thinking, that actually looks like text. What I'm making looks like text. So I would go to the bookstore in Paris and buy some cheap used books, old used books, and I started slicing the texts up and trying to make them look like those water paintings by lining up the text but slightly askew in strips. But that's really where it started. Through the 90s, I would just show up in Paris with nothing to make. I mean, nothing, no materials or nothing. I, I always brought an X-Acto knife and some paintbrushes and things that would cost a lot of money in Paris at that time to buy. I would go to the flea market. There, there are several great flea markets in Paris on the weekends, and I, and I would look for something to start with. One year I found a pile of comic books, French comic books, and that started my whole engagement with comics, which that is another thing that I'm doing right now is I've been drawing comics, abstract comics, Mm -hmm. um, no linear tale, but I'm really interested both in the relationship between words and image in comics and also the words in the original Batman, they actually portrayed words, the onomatopoeic words, Mm -hmm. You know, on the screen, they would say bam and wow and zow and all that. Language to me has always been a natural kind of thing, language writ large, the the idea that words could be material. But I didn't really realize that the way text looks is super interesting until that time in Paris. You also developed a kind of ritual or practice of, of walking through the city and taking photographs of things that you saw and then using those images reconfigured or cut apart. Could you speak a little bit more about how that practice came to be and maybe how you think about it in relation to your work and to other touchstones in art history or in the arts? I I started really thinking about walking in the city. I think around 1999, I had a residency at the International Studio Curatorial Program in New York. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was in Tribeca. So every morning... I would have the walk through Soho and then across Canal and down to the studio on, I think it was on Washington Street. I took different routes through Soho all the time, but I always stopped to get a coffee. Ever since I had been going to New York regularly or sometimes living in New York, I 
always took pictures of the very same stretch of sidewalk in Soho from probably 1982 to 2002. But when I'm walking around, one of the things that I started understanding was the relationship between walking in the city and walking around your own memory. So Mm -hmm. I started making the analogy, and I made work about this, that you could be standing in one place, say Chinatown, and you could be thinking about another place, say Chinatown, San Francisco, and you could be from an entirely different place, you know, so that this kind of um, layering of identities through memory, it's the simultaneous aspect of that, where you can be three things at, at once. And do you think about that layering of memory in relation to a concept like psychogeography or some of these terms that artists working in the 60s in Paris, like Guy Debord and the Situationists explored? Or do you see what you're doing as something that on the surface maybe seems similar, but is in fact quite different? I think it's really related. And at the same time, I hesitate to jump into the Situationist pool you evoking this layering of memory and then a kind of compression through this layering. I was curious to ask you about a work that you published 20 years ago now in Art Journal, the Art History Journal, called 64 Scenes. And I believe the introduction was written by Stephen Nelson for the piece. It plays on these questions of text and memory and narration and appropriation. But I also think because it is a long horizontal or a long extended format. There's also this extended temporality that has something to me to do with a film strip splayed out. Thanks for asking that um, about this piece called 64 Scenes, because I always felt that it was the hidden sleeper in, in the number of multiples that I've made over the course of my life. You're exactly right. It was meant to resemble a film strip. It's a collection of 64 images that are fragments from New York Times photographs, The fragments are all in color. They weren't cut from the paper in 1997, but 1997 was the year that the New York Times started printing color photographs in their paper, much to the chagrin of all intellectual people. (laughs) Did they think it was somehow less serious or had like less pathos than black and white or... They really thought that it turned the New York Times into a popular paper like USA Today. Just the height of snobbery. So I would make a viewfinder, which was one of the strategies of Corita Kent, too, and viewfinder out sections of these colored photographs from the newspaper. It was like walking around the city. It was like walking around the newspaper and trying to viewfinder these fragments and So I would get a whole palette of fragments out. I would cut out hundreds of things. And then I would just slowly start assembling them into this strip. And this is not the only strip I made. This is just the only one that I got to have another life beyond my making it. And I would try to arrange the fragments um, into rhythms of color and space, Um, not by topic, because by then I was totally divorced from the topic that the photograph was Mm -hmm. of. And then on the back of this film strip, it's about a yard long. On the back of each fragment is a text that is made by taking 
parts of the stage directions from plays and reassembling them so that they form a more poetic reading. For example, one of the backs of, of these photo fragments says, the back door opens. After a moment, a young latecomer appears at the top of the balcony with a very slight and rather becoming glow of orange. Mm. And so they ostensibly made sense, but there was no narrative created. They were just mm -hmm. these little vin vignettes of poetic recombinations of words. On the side of the photographs, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny text that's meant to represent the way sound might be added to the side of a film. I meant for it to be bound into the spine of the magazine so that once it was unleashed from its folded state, it would forever hang out of that magazine and be annoying, and you could never fold it back up quite right, and so it might get destroyed in the process of use. Mm -hmm. It never, I don't think it ever, it didn't get bound into the magazine. It got put into the magazine as a multiple, and so... Um, I don't think it ever had that effect on anyone. And I'm not sure what the actual use of the piece was. So thinking about the interweaving of text and memory and image, I understand that you had a recent piece, which is your first foray into anything that was textile based. And I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about that process and the research that you did at Oxford that led to the creation of this work. For a long time, I've known that the words text, textile, and texture all have the same Latin root. I had never really had an opportunity to play that out in my work, but in 2019, I was invited by St. John's College at Oxford to enter a competition for a tapestry project for their new library mm. um, and study center. So I made a proposal for that project, and I didn't get it. I, a wonderful UK artist named Susan Morris was chosen, but they had liked my proposal and my presentation so much that they invited me to work with another space at the, mm. and it was the in, interstitial space between a 17th century library and the new st study center. So it was kind of perfect for the way that I work because in these vertical fragments that I often use, it could be a kind of transition space between 17th century and 21st century. And so I went to the archive, to the special collections at the St. John's Library, and I looked at a lot of different texts uh, from the 11th century to the 19th century. And I chose several things to work with and, and got photographs made. And then I just brought all of those photographs into the studio and started chopping them up and reassembling them in the final tapestry, which is really large. It's 20 feet long and I think eight feet high. It's comprised of fragments of text from different centuries, all arranged in vertical strips. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, in the center, and at the end, I have words from Johnson's 18th century dictionary the first fragment is a fragment of the definition for to read. The middle one is to study, and the last one is to write. So these three fragments frame all of this other 
language chosen for its visuality rather than its meaning, mm-hmm. um, including Gaez, which is a um, form, an early form of Eritrean and Ethiopian. It's a root language, including ancient Hebrew and um, Arabic and old almanac symbols. And mm-hmm. so all framed by these three words. And it's all made in the colors of the archive, off whites, yellows, reds, the things that you would find in these in these ancient and more modern texts. My favorite text in there are Jane Austen's letters to her niece. Um, she, the niece had written a book and asked her auntie for some advice about it. And Jane Austen wrote in no uncertain terms her absolute opinion, which was not all good. It was not all bad, but she was very honest. It's so fitting in some ways that the finished work hangs in this interstitial space. Thinking again back to your early formative experience doing the window installations, uh, design research and this sort of interplay between passing through, but you're accruing. And maybe in closing, we can take it back to our local context. And I would just invite you to speak a little bit about your work at, at Mass MoCA, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art uh, in North Adams, um, just down the road from the Clark. I feel so lucky to live here in this area. I, I don't think I'll live here forever, but I to have the Clark and Mass MoCA and the Williams College Museum, all within 15 minutes of where I live, is just the most wonderful thing. And in 2017, the director and curators at MassMoca asked me to make a proposal for another kind of interstitial space, um, what was eventually going to be a bike path. They asked for, for murals that would invite repeated viewing and be adaptable. It is a space that opens to the outside at certain times of year. It's also the loading dock of the museum. When Mass Mocha has their big concerts, it's the green room for the musicians. And so it's a space that's both part of and not part of the museum. I made three different proposals. The proposal that they chose was one where... I had mixed the First Amendment of the Constitution with lorem ipsum, which is the dummy text that graphic designers use when they don't have the real text for their design work. And I mixed those up in Helvetica, and then I fragmented that text and made a collage, or several collages, and then I projected those collages onto the walls of this space, And then I hand-painted them all. So it's an enormous amount of space, and it took a really long time to paint. I interspersed mirrors into the space as well, long vertical mirrors, so that, one, if it were indeed a bike path, if I were riding a bike, I'd want to see myself riding the bike through the space. Then all sorts of accidental things happened in that work. It's very stark black and white, and the letters in many sections are really big. So not only do you sort out some words upon viewing from the First Amendment, like freedom of press and and um, power and, and assembly and all of, the, all of the kind of key words, but you also see accidental words 
there's words that are put together through the combination of those texts that really maybe only you see or were certainly unintentional. You know, I had always said to my students when I taught word and image classes, imagine that if every word you ever said hung in the air forever, so that when you're walking through space, you're always parting a curtain of words. And this installation at Mass Mocha plays that out in some real way, which was very satisfying to understand that that's what happened. And it's such a beautiful concretization of what can be more abstract ideas about the visuality of language. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and care and sharing your work and also speaking with me about it today. Thank you, Caitlin. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. This program was produced by me, Caitlin Woolsey, co-hosted with Caroline Fowler, with intro music by Light Chaser, audio editing by CJ DiGennaro, and additional support provided by Maggie O'Connor and Annie Jun. We acknowledge that the Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We also acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors past and present and to future generations by committing to build a more inclusive and equitable space for all.